Father, we do ask that you would uh, tear down whatever walls we have. Uh, Father, that by your Spirit you would um, give us ears to hear, uh, hearts to receive, um, hands to act. Lord, help me to make much of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. In the early 90s, uh, we had the Bosnian War. And there's this beautiful moment that's captured in a book um, by Sarah Clarkson called This Beautiful Truth, where she says in the midst of the rubble of the Bosnian War, there steps a classical musician dressed in a tuxedo with a cello. And he sits down in this rubble and he begins to play this beautiful piece. And Sarah Clarkson in her book writes it this way. She describes it so beautifully. During the Bosnian conflict, when Bosnia was a moil of bombed out buildings and broken lives, a classician dressed himself in a tuxedo and dragged his fine old cello into the ruins of the National Library. Straddling debris balanced between wreckage, he drew his bow and filled those aching ruins with music. He defied death with a song. His music made a truth opposite to destruction. And glimpsing him, tasting the sweetness of that daring song just a moment, those who heard him or saw the photograph afterward found themselves wondering if beauty really could somehow redeem a brutalized world. We are far too familiar with stories of of trauma, of devastation. And oftentimes these stories happen in churches. Oftentimes these stories come from Christian leaders who don't enter into the rubble, into the brokenness with, uh, with a posture of gentleness or of kindness, but of harshness. We watch, especially recently, I feel like in the last couple of years, there, has, there have been so many Christian leaders whose lives have been brought to life and who have uh, exposed this, this uh, reality that oftentimes our charisma outpaces our character. But I think also a lot of the time we're part of the problem, that we've built this monster, that oftentimes we want leaders who are brash, who are, who are captivating, who are direct, who are even harsh at times. Because we think this is the kind of like no-nonsense no leadership we need in the church to get things done. We don't have time for a cellist to come out and play something beautiful. Well, as we move in, as we continue on in 2 Timothy, we've been in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, 3 Timothy, don't worry. But we've been in 2 Timothy. And the urgency with which the Apostle Paul has been speaking to Timothy continues here. And it's an urgency that, that turns not only who Timothy is called to be as a leader in his church, but how he is supposed to engage with those uh, who are opposed to him. Paul continues to talk about these, these um false teachers. 
But for Paul, as he speaks to Timothy, there's a great concern with the inner life, with the state of Timothy's heart. As Jared shared with us last week, he talked a lot about the maintenance of these honorable vessels that are intended for honorable and holy use. And it would do us well to examine our hearts this morning. Even inviting Jesus to confront our preferences for power, our insistence of rightness, our hesitation to be humble and gentle, our eagerness, our temptation to add to the rubble and to the chaos and the destruction. And I think there's something in this passage today that there's a simplicity that has enormous patience for our leaders, so for our deacons and our elders who have been called and ordained here in our church, but even more, there are implications for us as a church and as a people. Implications that lead to the kind of redemptive community for which we long. So, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, 22 through 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently and evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The word of the Lord. I just want to look at three things this morning, because I'm a true Presbyterian. What to flee, what to pursue, where to rest. My apologies for the lack of alliteration this morning. What to flee, what to pursue, and where to rest. Give me a moment. Just like last week, this dry room for me. So what to flee. Right off the bat, Paul says, flee youthful passions. When I first looked at this, and and you may jump to the conclusion... That when you, when you hear youthful passions, you might think something uh, concerning sexual sin or some other indulgence. But what Paul is referring, here, referring to here is, is the kinds of things to which a young leader would uh, maybe fall into or be tempted to entertain. Things like rash self-confidence, hastiness, contentiousness, impatience, harshness. And Paul may even see some of, these Timothy, uh, some of these tendencies in Timothy. This kind of eagerness in Timothy to, to lead this church well, an eagerness, eagerness that quickly turn into these, uh, these things that, that a young leader could fall into. Paul doesn't want Timothy to be distracted. He doesn't want Timothy to perpetuate more activeness. And Paul tells him, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. 
Well, earlier in the opening verses of 1 Timothy, Paul says, tells Timothy to not devote himself to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Have nothing to do with these foolish, ignorant controversies. Some uh, translations would call them stupid controversies. Well, it's, it's not hard to see that this kind of thing exists in the world we live. I was just on Twitter last night, and I was like, man, I just cannot believe the things that we say to each other. I believe the things that Christian leaders say to other people. We have these convictions that quickly become weaponized. We dive into these conspiracies. And instead of gentleness, we just bring disaster. And Paul doesn't tell Timothy, you know what? I think you're the guy to go in there and show these false teachers what's up. You're pretty sharp. Why don't you just go put it all to rest? He doesn't say that. The kind of wisdom here is the kind that even when you think you have the right answer, that walking away is the best thing you can do. Ignoring it is the best thing you can do. Enough to simply flee and avoid. The language that Paul uses here is one of active pursuit. So as he says, uh, flee, pers- flee. And so he's saying, continue to flee. Always be fleeing. In the same way, always be pursuing. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So what, are, what is Timothy called to pursue? What are our leaders called to pursue? Righteousness, faith, love, peace, and then later, kindness, wisdom, patience, gentleness, faithfulness. And again, notice these are issues of culture. The greater concern is the state of one's heart. It's not charisma, it's not affluence, it's not popularity. It comes back to these things, the pursuit of these things. Consider how we often engage with those who oppose us, even our enemies. How many of those above things can we check off when we find our places? And even more, At the end of the day, what really is the goal of these arguments? What is the end goal for you? Is it rightness? Is it the presumption that God needs your defense? Even when such a defense is riddled with arrogance and harshness, do we really want to see change in a person's life? Or do we just want to argue and put them down? Are we quick to take offense and slow to forgive? And is our posture such that we entrust the power of transformation to God? Kindness leads us 
and leads others to repentance. Calling us to display a similar kindness. Displaying a similar repentance. The kind of thing that people see, that's, there's something about that that's, that's attractive. I think there's always room for us to grow in these places. As I was looking at this, I thought, you know, I wonder if it would be good to write uh, these seven or eight uh, good pursuits and sit down with those who are closest to me, my wife, my friends, my dog, um, to ask, where do, you, where do you see me falling short in some of these areas? Where do you see a lack of gentleness? Where do you see a lack of patience? You know, I've been, I feel like there's, there's been a season where I've just, I feel like there's this, this anger kind of welling up inside of me. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. And sometimes I'm like, am I going to explode? And I want to acknowledge. I want to be able to come to my wife. Just say, babe, I just, I feel angry. And I don't know why. And I want to bring it to the Lord and just say, Lord, I, I long for this to change. I long to be more patient. I long to be more gentle. Again, trusting that God in His kindness hears me and shapes me. What to flee, what to pursue, where to rest. We can rest in in two things. Not just two things, but two things according to this passage. You can rest in a faithful community and a gentle Savior. First, we rest in a faithful community. Look back at verse 22, the first verse. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now again, a majority of this passage concerns the leader. But I think here we see a community in which the leader flourishes. That as the leader pursues these things, so do we. And as I say a faith unity, I want to be very specific here. I'm talking about Hope Presbyterian Church. This is the local church body to which God has called us. Yes, we can speak generally in community, uh, but I really want to bring this uh, home for us. To speak to the leaders and to speak to you that, that this would be our pursuit as a church. That people would know Hope Presbyterian as gentle, as faithful, as loving, as peaceful. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance. For flows the spring of life. I would want us to consider a kind of uh, communal vigilance that depends upon a greater awareness of our sin and our need for transformation. You know, when we do confession of sin every week, it's not just for you. It's for us as a community. There's something really powerful about us as a congregation uh, speaking these confessions to saying that, yes, I individually contribute 
to a lot of problems. But we as a community often do that. And it's good for us to come together and to say, Lord, would you have on us? Would you restore to us the joy of your salvation, the gentleness of your salvation, the kindness of your salvation? We have four values as a church. Worship, relationship, incarnation, and beauty. Consider incarnation. The incarnation is the Christian teaching that became a human being and dwelt among us. And this truth compels us towards servanthood. That if we are going to incarnate, if we are going to go into every crack and corner of our workplace, streets of our city, to come in there with anything but a cello, so to speak, I think is dangerous. And yes, the, again, there's where we have to step away. Where Paul's saying, you, you know, these kind of quarrels, these things, just, just walk away. And I think we have wisdom with that. But let's just continue to build each other up. Be willing to submit yourself to, to a friend and say, man, I, I just help me. We can rest in faithful community and a gentle Savior. You may be really, some of you may be very skeptical of the Christian faith. Uh, in fact, you may have suffered because of a pastor's harsh words. You may even struggle to see these things modeled in Christians. In the church, all you see is a building full of hypocrites. Well, uh, hate to break it to you, I, I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> we are hypocrites. We often do things that, uh, that are contrary to, to what we believe and say we believe. But I think the beauty of the Christian faith is that even in our hypocrisy, we can come and make our appeal to Jesus. This Jesus who perfectly, perfectly modeled righteousness and faith and love and peace. But let me be clear that, that our appeal is not Jesus as an example. We don't merely look at Jesus and say, man, he, that's a pretty cool way to live. I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to try to do that. Not to him as an example, but as a Savior whose death brought us life, brought us an abundance of grace and the free gift of his righteousness. When we confess to Jesus that we need him, that we can't, we can't pursue these things without him, what a beautiful thing that he clothes us with his righteousness. And that's what makes us beautiful. That's what makes us joyful. That's what compels us to live the daily lives to which God has called us. And it's a beautiful thing. And perhaps you see God as harsh and unforgiving. As one whose patience is wearing thin with you. 
whose kindness is, is better used elsewhere. If that's where you are, may you experience the gentle and lowly Jesus who invites you, burdened in heaven to Himself, to find rest, to find healing, to find transformation. This is the Jesus who as a king came riding into Jerusalem donkey. This was the Jesus who was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. And this is the Jesus who was oppressed, or indeed himself, taking the form of a servant who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the Jesus who does the kind of work that we cannot do on our own. Long time ago, uh, there was a, uh, a Christian leader named um, Athenagoras. And he had a letter to the emperors of the time. The Christian people were facing persecution and being accused of committing certain offenses. Well, in this letter to the, uh, to the emperors, he, he affirms his beliefs, even stating that it would be irrational for us to cease to believe in the Spirit of God. But even more, he understood that his response depended on the legitimacy of his argument and more upon his fellow Christians demonstrating the lifestyle he professed and defended. So he's an emperor. Look at this, um, this great defense I've laid out for you. He's saying, look at, my, look at these people. Look how they're living their lives. Their posture is such that it would be irrational for them to cease in believing that the Spirit of God is moving in our midst. I pray that our pursuit as leaders, as a church, would be one of gentleness, of patience, of repentance. That we would entrust that work ultimately uh, to, to the Lord. That work of transformation. He is the one who alone people who are far from Him to Himself. But He draws us into that story. What a humbling thing it is to be invited into that. I pray that ours would be a repentant and gentle temperate and committed lifestyle of countercultural transformative witness there's a lot of this around us there's a lot of anger and i pray that we would be like the cellist who said what i'm going to do i'm not going to contribute i'm not going to contribute to the brokenness I'm going to bring something beautiful. I'm going to bring something gentle and lasting. We sang a song, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. And I'm going to end with this verse that we sang. Father, like He tends and spares us, well our feeble frame He knows. 
In His hands, He gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Praise Him, praise Him, widely as His mercy goes.